Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. morning, uh, we are continuing and concluding our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, And thus, today marks the end of our journey through the Bible cover to cover. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the very last page. Revelation 22, verse 6, we will end our year in the Bible with these final verses. Uh, If you've been with us for the last year and three months, uh, you might remember that we started last fall in the book of Genesis, in which humanity is created and uh, placed in a temple-like garden called Eden. And if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that we talked about uh, the climax of Scripture, the end goal of God's redeeming work in creation, which is a garden-like city. It is Eden reimagined. It is this world reborn. A new heavens and a new earth. A renewed physical universe in which God is at last fully present with his people. And evil and death and chaos are wiped off the face of the map. This is the future that is coming. The one that was made possible through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And and though it's the end goal of creation and the human story, they actually aren't the last words of Scripture. If you've been tracking with us for the last three months, uh, you know that we've been studying our way through the book of Revelation, in which the author, John, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, most people think, for preaching the gospel. Uh, And there, in isolation, God gives him this incredible visionary experience. The veil is pulled back on this world, and God reveals things to John about his present and our future. And so the book of Revelation actually starts with what's called a prologue or an introduction concerning what we're about to read. And it basically says, hey, what you're about to read is a letter. It's prophecy. It's apocalyptic. It's this vision given to John. And if you read it and take it to heart, then you will be blessed. And then, boom, we we enter into this vision, which, of course, we've been studying for the last three months. Now, this vision culminates in the new heavens and the new earth, our eternal home. But no sooner do we get this compelling vision of that future place when all of a sudden the curtain falls. The vision fades And then we get this epilogue, this outro, these concluding thoughts, which are the last verses of Scripture. 
If you're looking down at your Bible, um, verse 5 of chapter 22 concludes the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. We get this uh, picture of humanity, redeemed humanity, reigning with God forever and ever. And as the vision is fading, we get verse 6. So we'll pick up there. Then the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. And now we get the final words of Jesus. Look, he says, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the end of the Bible. And while chapters 21 and the first half of 22... Uh, give us a stunning vision of the new heavens and the new earth. The final verses are going to challenge us to live wisely between now and then. But one of the questions immediately raised by these concluding thoughts, the one that most modern readers struggle with, is this. Is Jesus actually coming soon? Five separate times in these closing thoughts, the Bible states that Jesus is coming soon. 
The angel showed John what must soon take place. Then Jesus says, I am coming soon. And the angel says, the time is near. And Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. And finally, yes, I am coming soon. So the first question that arises in my mind is what does that mean? These words were written in the first century, nearly 2,000 years ago. Were they wrong? Because 2,000 years have gone by and Jesus hasn't returned yet. Why would they say he's coming soon? And there's a few things that are worth pointing out on this issue. The first is that ancient cultures often had a different perception of time than we do. Uh, We in the West are very uh, future-oriented. Most of our focus, goals, dreams, desires lie in the future. And so we look to the future, and we plan the future, and we talk about progressing into the future, plotting events in the future. The present moment isn't terribly important to us. But many ancient cultures were more focused on the present moment. Uh, For them, the present moment was what actually mattered. And anything that was going to happen in the future would ultimately find its roots or source in the present. The present, for many ancient cultures, was a very uh, wide, significant period of time. So you have this wide period of time that's thought of as the present, And then you have some significant events that are out there beyond the present, looming on the horizon that had significance. So when we approach the Bible and we find statements like, I am coming soon, we naturally think about time through our lens. We think about the future and we try and plot a course uh, or even a prediction of when that might happen. We we try to uh, calendarize Revelation, if I can use that term. Let's, let's stick these things on the calendar. Uh, we're used to thinking about the future. We're used to plotting things out. So when we see a phrase like, I am coming soon, we think, well, Christmas is coming soon. 2020 is coming soon. Surely, that's what the biblical authors must have meant. But not only did the um, first century world and many of their cultures have a different focus in time, meaning that they were more focused on the present than the future, but they also had multiple ways of thinking about time. Sorry. So uh, time in the Greek, there are actually two different words. The first is a chronos, and a chronos time was um, chronological, sequential time. That's typically how we think about time. But then there was also kairos time, which focused on major things of importance and imminence. 
things that created uh, a sense of urgency and significance. And here's the difference between these two. If I'm thinking a chronos time, which is how we think in the West, well, then Christmas is soon and New Year's is soon and so on. Uh, if I'm thinking Kairos time, then I'm thinking about soonness in terms of significance and importance. There is this present moment that we're living in, and then there are several significant events that lie in the future that should deeply inform how I'm living right now in the present. So, as an example, our oldest son Moses is four years old. And there is some sense in which those four years have gone very quickly. It doesn't feel like it's been that long since he's been born, but he's already four. And I anticipate, based on what older parents have said, that the years to come may go even faster in terms of experience. So if I'm rooted in the present moment and I look to the horizon, there's actually a sense in which I can say, wow, before you know it, Moses is going to have a driver's license. Like it's actually not that far away. And then he'll be out of the house living on his own. That, that's going to happen soon. It will be here before we know it. And so we actually need to work backwards. We need to live with that on the horizon and, and actually start preparing for that right now. Moses is moving out of the house soon. In terms of weight, significance, kairos time, something of imminence and urgency on the horizon to be prepared for in the present. Are you with me? Moses is moving out soon. We don't have much time with him. We have to plan our present moment in light of that. New Year's is soon. We should probably plan our New Year's party. Okay? Both of them are soon, but in different understandings of that word. In terms of its significance and urgency and noteworthiness, the return of Jesus is of infinite importance for this age. And we should be living our present moment in light of that looming future event. And that's what I'd like to focus in on for the remainder of our time this morning. Um, the question, is Jesus coming soon, is actually closely related to the more important question which is, how should we live in light of Jesus' return? How should we live between now and then? This morning, we finish our study through the book of Revelation. It's all about the end times or the last days. It's supposed to shape how we live in the present. But the driving question we need to answer as we close is how are we supposed to live in the present? How is this wild apocalyptic book supposed to actually change the way that we live? 
Because oftentimes, people get really into studying the book of Revelation, and their main takeaway is that they need to stockpile food, or withdraw from society, or brace themselves for great trials and tribulations, or give away all of their possessions, because Jesus is about to return. And in response to the book of Revelation, a shocking number of people have tried to predict the exact time and day that Jesus will return. But as we close, we have to ask, is that the point of the book? Is that how God intended us to respond to everything we've been studying over the last three months? How should Revelation shape our lives? And more specifically, how is the soonness of Jesus' return meant to inform the way we live? And for that, we have to turn to the Master himself. If you have a Bible open, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 24, verse 36. And we'll pick up there in a moment. Um, Jesus uh, actually had a lot to say about how we should live in light of his return. In the first half of uh, Matthew 24, as you're turning there, uh, Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the age. These are um, two separate events, but in classic apocalyptic style, Jesus almost blurs their near future and their distant future together. So Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem, and then he shifts into talking about the end of the age, and then he says this about the end of the age. Matthew 24, verse 36 He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Who knows when Jesus is going to return? Well, apparently, Jesus himself didn't know. Only the Father knows. So the next time someone claims to have decoded revelation and they know exactly when Jesus will return, you can politely direct them to the Bible and to Matthew 24. And in fact, Jesus is just getting started. If you still have your Bible open, glance down to verse 42. He says this. He says, Therefore, Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. If we're all expecting Jesus to come back on May 17th, 
2020, then it guarantees that Jesus will not come back on May 17th because that's when you're expecting him. And he literally says, I'm going to come back when you're not expecting me. And just in case that wasn't enough, Jesus launches into a series of brilliant parables that drive this point home and explain how we are to live in light of his return. And this is where things get really interesting. By the time we get through these three parables, the concluding words of Revelation are going to make a lot more sense. Okay, let's continue reading. This is verse 45. It says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Moral of the story, the servant thinks his master won't return for a long time. And oops, the master returns sooner than he anticipated. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Parable number two, which I'm going to sum up for us. There are ten maidens, or some of your translations say virgins, who are given lamps filled with oil. And they are told to to light those lamps as a means of welcoming the groom into his wedding banquet. Okay? So the maidens are waiting outside a banquet hall. The expectation is that as the groom approaches, your lamps are lit. You're part of the welcoming party coming into the banquet. Your lamp should be lit. You welcome him in. The foolish maidens don't bring extra oil or refills for their lamps. They aren't in it for the long haul, okay? They actually think the groom is coming very soon. So they light the oil in their lamps, assuming that, of course, the groom will be here any minute. So I can burn the oil in my lamps. Let's burn what we have. And they run out of oil. And then hours later, when the groom arrives, they're shut out of the wedding banquet. Only those who brought extra oil and who were prepared for sustained waiting were rewarded. Okay, so let's get this straight. Parable number one, you think the master won't return for a long time. And oops, he shows up sooner than you thought. Parable number two, you think the master is going to return very soon, and he doesn't. Oops, he shows up much later 
than you anticipated, and you were not prepared. Are you tracking with me? Okay, parable number three. A master is going away on a long journey, and he entrusts bags of gold to his servants. Some get a lot of gold, some get a little. But most of them invest their gold and grow the wealth of their master. But one of the servants takes his gold and simply buries it in the ground. So once again, we get this picture of the master returning. And we're told in the parable that the master was gone a long time, maybe longer than the servant actually anticipated. So the servant digs up his gold and gives it back to the master, and the master welcomes the others in because they invested and then shuts this servant out because he buried what was entrusted to him instead of investing it. Okay? So if you think Jesus isn't returning for a long time, watch out because he might return very soon and catch you off guard. If you think Jesus is returning next week and you give away all your possessions and move to Mexico, watch out because he might not return for a very long time, much later than you thought or anticipated. And you didn't set yourself up for the endurance run, for the long haul. What Jesus is after is neither one of those. He's after a sustained sense of soonness. There's a reason that Jesus says, I am returning soon. And all the authors of the New Testament talk about this imminent return. You realize that the New Testament was written over the course of decades? From the time that Jesus spoke those parables that we just read to the writing of Revelation could have been 60 years. And yet, the authors don't back down an inch. They insist, and Jesus confirms, this sense of soonness with which we are to live. And it's worth noting that the church throughout history has always emphasized the imminent return of Christ. If the Father wanted you to know the exact day and time Jesus was going to return, he would have told you. And he didn't. He doesn't want you to know. Instead, he's after sustained and passionate living. God wants you in a perpetual state of readiness. God wants you to live as if it could be any moment, but to live that way over the course of a lifetime. He wants you to wake up, to live with this sense of imminence and urgency and passion 
Each day should be lived in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return. His return is, is imminent. It's looming. It's really soon. So, what we are to do day in and day out is actually to take our time, talent, and resources, the gold that God has entrusted to us, and to invest them in the kingdom of God. That's the third parable. Parable number one, don't get caught thinking that Jesus won't return for a long time because he might surprise you. Parable number two, don't bank everything on the fact that Jesus is going to return tomorrow and live foolishly in the present because you need to be prepared for the long haul. So don't just sit on the couch and get caught off guard. But neither should you run at a sprint that you can't maintain. Instead, plan for a sustained, passionate marathon, which is lived in a perpetual state of readiness. Parable 3 says, always be at work, investing in the kingdom, so that when the king shows up, he can reward you for the life that you're living. If you think the end is near, don't withdraw into the woods. Engage in the kingdom of God. Use your gifts, your time, your talent, your resources to make an investment in the kingdom that's going to pay dividends in eternity. The sad irony is that many of those who are most passionate about decoding the book of Revelation and trying to place events on the calendar can sometimes end up being the most disobedient when it comes to the call of Jesus on their lives. Jesus is coming back soon. But that is not a call to withdraw in fear. It is a call to engage with joy and passion. It is a call to live a life of radical, sustained investment in the kingdom. And this shows up all over the New Testament. This isn't a revelation thing. All of the biblical authors agree that we should be in a state of perpetual readiness. And they actually emphasize two things. One, the time is short. Okay, Live with a sense of urgency. Live with a sense of soonness. That's Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 7, Hebrews 10, James 5, 1 Peter 4 and 5. The time is short. Wake up. And the second thing they emphasize is that the end will be a surprise. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, all of those parables of Jesus. We only read a few of them. You don't know when it's coming. You won't see it coming. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch 
because you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch. Be ready always. Operate under the continual assumption that the time is short and that Jesus is coming soon. In my life, personally, that means I use my gifts for the sake of the kingdom. I make an investment in the kingdom. I'm probably a a three-talent guy to use one of Jesus' parables. Maybe four. But I tell you what, I want to leverage all three of my gifts as much as I can for the sake of the kingdom. I want to make a faithful and sustained investment, not apathetic, not half-hearted, but something that is passionate, urgent, and yet can be sustained for a lifetime. If Jesus comes back tomorrow, my hope is that he would find me faithfully using my gifts of service, of leadership, of teaching, of prophetic words, of whatever it is, to build up the body of Christ. That that he would find me investing my time, my talent, my resources, my career, gifts of the Spirit, all of it. My sustained passion for serving the church is, is born out of this truth that Jesus is coming back soon. And and when I grow apathetic in my calling, which happens from time to time, I, I get on my knees and I ask God to restore this sense of urgency and passion. God, wake me up to the fact that you are coming soon. I want to be ready today. I want to be investing today. When it comes to relationships, God has seen fit to give us this pesky call to forgiveness. Part of my motivation in forgiveness is the imminence of Jesus' return. Some of us carry around wounds and baggage and anger and bitterness For years. And not only do those things warp your soul and steal your joy, they also set you up really poorly for Jesus' return. You have to forgive. You have to. Let go. Heal. Wake up. Use your gifts. If he returns tomorrow, he shouldn't find you on the couch with your gifts buried in the backyard. Oh, wow. Hi, Jesus. Wasn't expecting you. Here's all of the time, talent, and resources you gave me. I kept them safe and sound. In fact, I buried them out back years ago. Just been 
binge-watching Netflix since then. My 20s have been great. But I can, I can go unbury them now that you're here. I can give all of that back to you. I'll go unbury my gifts. Or maybe not. Don't bury your gifts. Don't make life about you. Don't dabble around in sin and apathy and unforgiveness. Because you don't know when your master will return. Don't sit on the couch and waste your life away. Don't jump off the couch and sprint at a pace that you cannot maintain. But rather, live a life of sustained passionate investment in the kingdom of God because Jesus is coming back soon. We'll end with this. The words of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. This is the end of the Don Treader as uh, Lucy and Aslan are parting ways. Aslan says, Do not look sad. We shall meet again soon. Please, Aslan, Lucy said, what do you call soon? I call all times soon, said Aslan. And instantly he was vanished away. And you can just hear the words of Jesus in there, whispering, yes, I I'm coming soon. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The one who reads Revelation says, come, Lord Jesus, come. And when you do, may you find us ready. Let's pray.